Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. In today's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark, we're proud to tell you about Rack a leading manufacturer of affordably priced, high-quality hand tools and accessories for the handyman and the do-it-yourselfer, and their innovative magnetic wristband, the Amazon best-selling Perfect Edition to your assortment of home improvement workspace tools. For more information and to see their assortment of products, just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash rack. Rack is spelled... R-A-K. As an Amazon associate, I earn from qualifying purchases. By visiting that URL before you make your purchase, a portion of the sale comes back to me and the team at Scary Stories Told in the Dark, and you'll be helping to support this program at no cost to you and letting the kind folks at Rack know we sent you. I'll be back after our first story tonight, to tell you a little more about our friends at Rack, including how those of you in my listening audience can enter for a chance to win a 100% free magnetic wristband of your own and a custom-produced story, plus access to exclusive subscriber-only narrations and inside updates just by signing up for my podcast mailing list. Until then, go ahead and lock your doors... Double-check beneath your bed. You never know what might come crawling out while I've got you distracted. <laughs> Stay tuned. The show is about to begin. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. 
such terrifying tales you're after? Well, then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable. Settle in. Turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 4. I'm your host, Otis Gyre. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about artificial fiends, the not-so-great outdoors, fear-inducing fog, and curious cadavers. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors... Turn your lights down low and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author Eric Scott. In it, we experience a dystopian future in which inhuman antagonists have nefarious plans for all of humanity. One courageous individual, however, refuses to accept their revolution. But will it be enough to redeem mankind? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Plasticity. I remember my first kiss. What boy doesn't? Lisa Miller's soft, wet mouth pressed into mine, as the salty flavor of her tears coated my lips, a taste I still remember after all these years. Then she was gone. I was eleven when the plastic men came. Sidney called them polished men because their blank faces reminded her of the polished plaster sculptures her mother collected. Their featureless faces, like saran wrap pulled tightly over bone, still haunt my dreams. They wore bowler hats, like old English businessmen. One of the kids from New York called them city gents, but I called them plastic men because I knew what they were. Most of us witnessed our parents' death. I can still hear my sister Tina scream from her playpen as Mom and Dad lifted into the air, their cracking bones resounding through the house, their skin pulled taut. An ivory film washed over them in undulating waves. When I reached for my mother's arm, her skin felt mushy, like grabbing a sponge soaked with wet paint. Heat radiated from their bodies, and I watched the skin and bones melt into a puddle of red and white slime, soaking into the carpet as Tina continued to scream. I'm told every adult disappeared from the planet in less than an hour. 
When the plastic men took me, I begged them to bring my sister, but they ignored me. I never saw her again. Now, as a man, I regret that I didn't do more for her. I try not thinking of her last days, left to starve in her playpen. They brought me and the other children to a place called Grover's Farm and Orange Grove. They made us work in the fields and pick oranges. Sidney said there were places like ours all over the world and that soon we would all disappear. There wasn't any way she could know, but I believed her. Looking back, I think the work we did meant nothing to the plastic men. They never ate any of the food. Hell, I don't even know if they ate food at all. I believe the work just occupied our time while they waited until we reached the age they could turn us. They always took two boys and two girls between the ages of seven and sixteen every month. I didn't understand why at the time, and I still don't know why they only took four of us. Sidney said it was because they needed two couples, one main and one backup. Of all that Sidney was right about, I think she was wrong about that. I've read a lot over the years to try to make sense of what happened to us. That part still leaves me bewildered to this day. As I sit here writing this, I can see Lisa's face. I wish I could picture the girl I knew from middle school, the one with the bright blonde hair and boisterous laugh that echoed through our lunchroom. But all I can retrieve from my memories is the day they took her. When they pulled her away from me, her body floated off the ground, summoned to the circle, as if she were a moon orbiting the plastic men who stood in the center. Static electricity charged the air as each of the four children hovered, as graceful as the save descending to heaven. The terrible sucking sound followed as the plastic blurred their faces, replacing our friends with a mannequin version. They hung above the dirt ring, their faces wiped clean of familiarity, disappearing into fake plastic stares, like the plastic men who watched from the other side with their bowler hats and three-piece suits. Except for Toby. Tiny twelve-year-old Toby, with his red hair and pale face peppered with freckles, resisted. His face contorted like the others, but with a shake of his head, his features returned, a look of bewilderment in his eyes, and his body lowered to the ground. When he touched down, the plastic men slid over to him, but their movements were not typical smooth line. They flickered, as if slipping and tripping through space and time. Vibrations like minuscule waves across a white desert covered the blank plastic sheet that bent to form expressions on their dead faces. Toby had hurt them. They took him by the arms and whisked him away. As we watched... The rest of the plastic men moved aside. Lisa and the others still hovered as the plastic overtook them completely. I stared at Lisa's hand, the same hand I held on our walks, and watched it solidify into a hard synthetic shell. When I tried to leave, Sidney grabbed my arm. They're eating their innocence, 
She whispered, looking over each shoulder, her eyes darting side to side. Well, then you're safe, laughed Ronald. Fuck off, Ronnie. Sydney shot back, her dark hair falling across her forehead, allowing only glimpses of her cold blue eyes. I found a path yesterday when you all were jerking off with your football. There's a way out through the generator room. There's a path through the field that leads to the woods. From there, they'll just bring you back, argued Ronald. Sydney narrowed her eyes, shaking her head. She hated when people interrupted her. If you get out of range, they can't find you. You don't know that. They'll kill you. They'll kill us anyway. And with me and you, Tubby, it's going to be real soon. We're almost old enough. This is crazy. You're going to get yourself killed. Just leave me and Charlie out of it, said Ronald. Pussy, spat Sidney. Stay here and die. See if I care. I'll go, I said. As soon as the words came out, Regret filled the core of me. It felt as if I had swallowed one of the oranges from the grove. Dude, she's nuts, said Ronald. Don't let her bully you. Let Charlie speak for himself, Sidney interrupted. Ronald opened his mouth to argue, but only chuckled as he walked away, shaking his head. Sidney fixed her hardened stare on me. We should go tonight. No reason to wait. Really? After a failed transformation? I asked, hoping to delay my inevitable backing out. She nodded, excitement filling her voice. Exactly. They'll be all wrapped up in why it happened. They'll let their guard down. My regret morphed into fear, and Sidney saw the apprehension on my face. She raised a finger and waved it at me. Don't you back out now on me. What happened today is perfect for us. I turned away from her, my body wanting to flee. She grabbed my shoulder and spun me around. Her thin, wiry hands gripped me hard, nails digging into flesh. Working in the field as hard as she did had endowed her with muscles I could only dream of at my age. Brushing the hair from her face, she put our foreheads together. Today was nothing, she said. They probably thought he was older, is all. He's the only redhead in this entire place. They probably just misjudged his age and thought he was ready for the change. I know I wanted to go with her, but I never thought I would have the courage. I guess it was because she scared me a little. They had brought Sidney in with the last group, and she had been defiant from the start. I had a great deal of respect for her fervent passion. She approached everything she did with zeal, from simple chores to her plans of escape. She put all of her into everything she did. It burned inside her, and part of me wanted to be close to that heat. I wanted her to keep me safe. Since she was two years older than I was and smarter than most of us, I thought she could protect me. We thought we'd never see Toby again, but that night they hurried us into one of the large farmhouses 
the big green one in the center of the complex. Sydney said that was where they slept, but I never saw the plastic men go into any of the buildings. They seemed to vanish around corners or blend into cracks between the trees and tractors. They were all there that day, standing on a makeshift stage. Plastic men lined the back wall, the paint peeling randomly behind them. As I stared at the spots of rust and paint, my imagination created screaming faces in the random lines. Light poured from behind them, dousing their emotionless faces in shadows. All we could see was the outline of their boulder hats. A single rope drifted listlessly next to one of them, a noose at the end, as the others took their place in front. They turned their backs to us, tipped their hats to the stage. As they put them back on, Toby walked out. He stared blankly, as if he were drugged or uncaring of the crowd that had gathered. He walked to the noose and turned to face us. Dusty motes drifted in the artificial light as the plastic man tightened the noose around his thin neck. Are they going to kill him? asked Ronald. I turned and looked at Sidney. Rage filled her eyes. I grasped her hand to quell my shaking. The plastic man, who stood on the stage, tilted his head slightly. Toby's body came off the ground slowly at first, and then shot up into the rafters, stopping a foot below the ceiling. With a nod of his head, the plastic man turned away, and Toby fell to the gasps of the crowd. I heard his neck snap, and he jolted back up before his listless body went limp, swaying in the silent room. The plastic man in the front clapped, as if watching a nice shot on a par five. Now, as an adult, I understand that the first moment a child comprehends true evil is a terrible thing. But with us, it meant that the plastic men noticed you. After Toby, we couldn't pretend any longer. We all knew that one day before our 16th birthday, they would call to us, we would gather in a circle, and we would become lost in the euphoria of the change. We would turn into plastic and melt away like our parents. For the first time, one of us resisted. He did not turn, but found relief in death. For us, that was a better alternative. The next night, Sidney came to my bunk and crawled into bed with me. I felt her tight body against mine, like one large muscle enveloping me. Her breath smelled of onions and sweat. You understand we have to go tonight, right? I always thought the sparkle in Sidney's eyes portrayed passion, or some level of perseverance that urged me to want to follow. Looking into her eyes under the covers of my bunk, I understood that what I saw was lunacy. I think we should wait for a better time, I said. I could hear her teeth grinding. She wrapped her arms around me. I'm ready to live or die tonight. I'm done waiting. I'll scream and they'll come. They'll hang us both, just like Toby. I started to cry. Why are you doing this to me? Shut up. You have the strength in you. 
You just don't know it. When you get older, you'll understand. But we have to leave so you can get older. Don't fuck this up. Please. Let's just stay. We should think about it. She wiped my tears away with her thumbs and took my cheeks in her hands. She kissed me. My second kiss. If not for the circumstances, I would have been ecstatic. And she stared into my eyes. She told me all she knew. She told me our innocence saved us. We were children and did not understand the world. We had hope. We still believed in something that grown-ups could not anymore. Once adulthood took us, the world would become simple and stagnant. We would want what the adults wanted. College, a career, a house in the suburbs. All the things needed to complete our plastic dreams. Adults were just waiting for the plastic men to come and follow through on what they already felt. The world had died in a sea of plastic, and adults were the ones responsible for conjuring the plastic men. When she finished, she kissed me again. I'll go, I said, and for the first time, Sidney smiled. We crept out of the bunkhouse and made our way to the small building that stood near the edge of the property. It housed the large generator that provided power to most of the buildings. The electrical lines were still active, but the plastic men only allowed us to use minimal power to operate the machinery. We used candles or kerosene lamps at night. Plastic men hovered along the perimeter of the property. When they first brought us to the farm, many tried to escape. The ones who spoke of their thwarted getaway attempts only said that there wasn't a way out. As I gazed into the night, I imagined the plastic men floating in the dark waiting to put their cold hands on me. You see that small hole, said Sidney, pointing to a crack at the bottom corner of the building. It looked to be about the size of a rabbit hole. You'll never fit through there, I said. You let me worry about that, said Sidney, peering around the corner. All you need to do is pry up the wood and squeeze through. It's one of the drainage channels. You'll have to slide all the way to the other end. Once you get to the other side, burst your way through, and you'll be right at the edge of the woods. Start running and don't look back. Got it? I nodded and she hugged me. She turned and sprinted to the building. I followed, keeping my vision focused on the crack at the corner like a well-shot arrow. When I reached it, I gave the slat a quick tug, and the cracking of the wood sounded loud in my ears. I did not look back. I scurried under and made my way into the dark corridor. After a moment, my eyes adjusted to the room, a mixture of wet dirt and mouse droppings squished between my fingers, and the smell of burning oil overwhelmed my nostrils. I covered my mouth to stifle a cough and tasted the muddy ground. I felt wet earth ooze across my arms and legs. I had crawled roughly halfway and I could see light beaming through the other side. My freedom awaited. Then I heard a muffled scream. I looked behind to see if Sidney was close. Only a circular light from my entryway beamed back. I inched my head above the lip of the ditch. 
Plastic men hung in a circle, their artificial faces crunched into smiles. Sydney stood in the middle, blood dripping from the corner of her mouth. Her clothes were torn, and she favored her right arm. One of the plastic men reached down and slapped her across the mouth, and she fell. When she lifted up, I saw the bone sticking out of her arm. She turned and saw me. There were many things I want to forget about that night, but I don't want to forget the way Sidney's eyes lit up when she saw me and the smile that appeared at the corners of her mouth. It was the happiest I'd ever seen her. Bouncing to her feet, she charged the one who had hit her. He flipped his arm, sent her flying into the wall. Dust puffed as she landed and coughed blood onto the filthy floor. Before she could lift up again, they were on her, kicking and stomping. Blood spurted from her mouth. She wailed and cried as it came down on her like a pack of wild dogs clawing at her skin. They ripped the rest of her clothes from her skinny frame and dug their plastic nails into her flesh, beating her long after her body had stopped moving, as if they were kicking a bag of sand. I felt sick and dizzy, but I turned to the light ahead of me and pushed forward. When I broke through the other side, I didn't look back, just like Sidney had told me. My legs wobbled, but I bolted for the woods. Old tractors filled the field, and I darted between them, lungs burning, eyes on the tree line that looked so close, but never seemed to get closer. I waited for those plastic fingers that had torn apart Sidney to grasp my shoulder, pull me down, and beat me as they'd beaten her. I'm not sure how long I ran. I didn't stop until I collapsed from fatigue, passing out behind an old trailer. When I regained consciousness, I thought about going back to my home. It was a brief thought. I knew if I went back, all I'd find would be the dried-up puddles of my parents and the bones of my sister. I'd had enough horrific images to last me a lifetime. I didn't need one more. The trailer looked empty, so I went in and found some cans of soup. I gobbled down the cold liquid and vegetables, my stomach roiling after each swallow, but I held it down. After grabbing a few bottles of water and some chips, I walked through the woods until I found a road. In the distance, I recognized the Bank of America building, its stone facade stretching into the sky, looking more like a cathedral. The copper and gold roof reminded me of the Mayan step pyramids we learned about in social studies. Light reflected off the synthetic casing that enveloped the building, and bits of plastic hung to the antenna at the very top. I started walking toward it, knowing that I would run into civilization soon. I still hoped I'd find more people, specifically adults. Part of me believed that adults still survived somewhere, and that the army or someone had a plan to destroy the plastic men. I just needed to find them. I came to a sign that read, Lock Raven. I remembered that our fourth grade class visited the reservoir at Lock Raven to learn about the ecosystem. As I hurried down the road, 
I noticed the silence for the first time, as if I'd walked into an anechoic chamber. My ears felt stuffy, and the pounding of my heart filled the void. I constantly spun around, expecting the plastic men, with their faces devoid of life, to be there, waiting. I reached my first neighborhood, elated that I'd find someone. Houses stood in stillness in the midst of the dim morning light as if a lampshade covered the sun. Filmy residue shrouded the sky, and for the first time I really saw the plastic that covered the world. Pieces floated through the air like jellyfish in the ocean. Clouds faded in hazy light, like the light in a gas station bathroom, gave the street a dull ambiance. Shadows of darkness crept at every corner. Plastic, like a virus, spread across the ground in tendrils. It covered the grass in large circular patches, stretching like tarps thrown over a baseball field. Lines of thin plastic, like the silk from a spider's web, clung to every tree and house. I couldn't stop staring at the artificial scenery until I noticed her. A small girl, sitting in the center of the road, legs crossed, rock her head side to side, as if listening to a familiar song. I approached her, stepping quietly. Her eyes closed, she hummed, continuing to bob her head. She looked to be my age, perhaps a year or so younger. Golden ballet slippers glistened against her pale skin, the laces as brilliant as sunshine. Her dress, a spiral of blue, red, and yellow, radiated in the bleakness that surrounded her. Freckles under her eyes and across the bridge of her nose enhanced the blossoming red of her cheeks. Hello, I whispered, trying not to startle her. She gently opened her eyes and smiled. Copper irises laced with ebony stared back at me, her look warm and inviting. You escaped, she said plainly. Her voice calmed and made me uncomfortable simultaneously. I nodded. Pieces of plastic, like weeds scattered across the garden, shriveled around where the girl sat. Do you know what's happened? she asked. I killed my family, I said, the words escaping my lips, before the emotion registered in my brain. I started to sob. She smiled softly, her expression knowing and sympathetic. Yes, they did, but they have not won. Not yet. She turned and took my hand. Her scarlet hair dangled in long strands. Turning, she pushed toward the plastic that crawled across the ground and receded like waves of the ocean. Squeezing my hand, she lifted my arm in the air, passing it over the ground. Strands of plastic pulled back and flittered into the air. Did you do that? I asked. Yes, I will show you. She raised our arms above our heads, and I felt power. Electric and geothermal surged through me. It came from the ground, the trees, the sky, the core of the earth. Burning like molten lava, 
coursed through my veins, and pain touched every molecule of my body. Tiny needles pricked my skin, numbing all feeling. Tears streamed down my face. I tried to let go, pull away from her, but she held me tight, her grip reminding me of Sydney. The pain will pass, she said in an even tone. Sydney was your friend? I looked at her. Pale skin, sprinkled with tiny freckles. The pain subsided a little. Yes, she was my friend at the farm. We tried to escape together. The plastic men, she pulled me closer. Do you feel her? Images filled my mind and the girl faded from my vision. I closed my eyes trying to slow the vertigo. Don't fight it. The girl's voice seemed far away, her light breath touching my neck, comforting, calming my nerves, and allowing my senses to take in all that flooded my mind. Do you feel Sydney? Her words released Sydney into my conscious mind. Fever touched my skin as phrases and numbers spiraled around me. Then, through the chaos, she was there. Sydney. It was as if she were under the covers again, her intense stare boring into me. Adults conjured the plastic men, she said. The plastic grew inside them. But I was wrong. It doesn't have to happen to us. We can change the world. The plastic doesn't have to be our story. When we reach puberty, the plastic men convert us. Girls are taken younger because they become mothers. The plastic men don't want more of us. Children can grow up and have children of their own that do not desire the plastic world or crave the loss of earlier adults. We can be connected again. Sydney faded into the air and she smiled. That same smile she flashed before the plastic men took her from me. When she disappeared from my vision, I realized the girl had released a grip and returned to her cross-legged position on the road. Her red hair glowed in the light as the sun dipped below the horizon, the shadows stretching over us. It's night already? I asked. Muscles in my legs twitched, and aches ran through my bones. Alteration takes much from both of us. We need to rest now, reflect. She patted the ground, and I collapsed next to her. What's your name? I asked. I'm Maya. We can find the others now. Before I could ask who the others were, dizziness overtook me and my vision blurred. When I closed my eyes, a large room appeared with a long wooden table, like the one in our elementary school library. Large bound volumes, suspended one on top of the other, lined the black walls. Light hovered from an unseen source above. A map of the world lay on the table. Butterflies, small and large, colorful and plain, fluttered from all directions. They landed on the map, their wings drawing still. There were thousands across the earth. Feel better? asked Maya. She appeared at my side wearing a bright yellow dress, red and blue flowers opening and closing on the fabric. Is this a dream? 
I asked as my body glided to the table. Tiny white and blue lines like veins connected the butterflies on the map. No, this is now, always now. We're all with you, and you are with us. But what if the plastic men come while we're in here? They'll take us, they'll turn us. She smiled again and touched my cheek. They can't touch us. We're connected to the earth in a way that they do not even understand. As she spoke, her fiery hair twisted, changing color like an octopus in a coral reef. Yellow, green, orange, magenta, carillion came and went in patterns. Her hair morphed around her face. Are you doing that or am I? I asked. We both are. I don't understand. She waved her arm across the map. We came from stars. Even the plastic men know this. We are all Earth. We are all universe. My friends? Her smile dropped. You will learn fast, I think. We have much to do. Please sit. I sat feeling all the vibrations and sensations from the others in my mind, in my essence. Children who, like me, had escaped the plastic men and connected to one another in a way lost to humanity. We are stars, Maya repeated. The universe is linked, and we are her children. In the beginning, we lost touch with ourselves. We ignored the warnings. We only thought of the present and the self. Satisfaction became our driving force, and with it, we accomplished much, but at great cost. The room grew dark, and the butterflies glowed, illuminating the map in subdued light. Adulthood came quicker, Maya continued. Plastic engulfed us completely, and we went willingly. We wanted nothing more than to believe in our plastic life. We hid in the false. It pleased us. But it killed us, I said softly. Maya beamed with pride. Yes, you do learn quickly. Tears welled up in my eyes. My friends at the farm, Sidney and Toby, I should have done something to save them. As I spoke, Maya tilted her head as if listening to someone calling her name. Her eyes widened, and a smile grew from the corners of her mouth. "'Your farm is open,' she said. "'What do you mean, opened?' I asked. "'Toby. They took him unnaturally. The area is weakened now.' Her eyes narrowed, and her smile turned sinister. "'The plastic can be melted.' We arrived at the farm the next morning, and I could feel power emanating from Maya. When she took my hand, my mind connected with her and the earth. I drew power, feeling it like a switch flicked on as it spiked inside me. When the plastic men saw us approaching, they turned to run. They understood the power inside us, and I tasted their fear on my tongue, savoring the flavor. Maya would not allow them to escape. Fire encircled the farm, 
and I felt the flames tickling my skin as I helped her maintain the perimeter. Slowly, we compressed the circle of flames, herding the plastic men into the center of the field. The children from the farm, timid and tentative at first, gathered round. Maya rose into the air, hovering over the plastic men, her eyes like lakes of lava. I purged this plastic, she proclaimed, her voice carrying across the field. She spread her arms wide, and I used every bit of my newly found abilities to hold the fire ring in place. Sweat beaded my forehead as I exerted all my inner strength to hold them. Maya raised her arms above her head and closed her hands into fists. When the flames constricted and swallowed the plastic men, they screamed as the fire shredded their bodies. Their bowler hats and suits exploded into flame. The fire intensified, and my nostrils filled with the toxic smell of burnt plastic. As the fire subsided, Maya floated down to the ground. Her face slathered with sweat. She reached her hand out to take mine. Her touch felt hot and clammy, but it reinvigorated me. You did well, she told me. You will improve each time. My hands trembled, and she raised them to her lips, kissing them gingerly. Heat from her touch warmed my skin. She turned to the children, who stood in disbelief. We are few, but we are strong, said Maya. Charlie and I will guide you. The plastic will be purged from this world. That was ten years ago. We've had many victories and some defeats. I lost Ronald to the plastic a year ago today. He grew up to be brave, but he left himself open to plastic dreams, and they converted him. Plastic men still control much of the world, but we're beating them. Maya and I have children of our own now, and my power continues to grow. Our only obstacle is within us. Our false fantasies are hard to resist. Some of us fall, but we keep fighting for our future. The world we desire does not need the plastic. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Plasticity by author Eric Scott as performed by yours truly, 
Up next, we've got another terrifying tale, this one, from author E.C. Mann, about a camping and hunting trip gone wrong. When a member of the group of friends mysteriously vanishes, forcing the others to traverse the harsh winter environment in order to find them, they might just discover more than they expected. Before we proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about Rack and how their innovative home improvement and DIY accessories can help you and your loved ones get more done and finish their jobs in less time with less frustration. With Rack's magnetic wristband, there's no more going to the toolbox or searching your pockets. No more headaches from losing or dropping screws, nails, bolts, and other small tools. And this week, I'm giving away a Rack magnetic wristband absolutely free. To enter for your chance to win, all you've got to do is sign up for my scary stories told in the dark mailing list by Sunday, February 9th, 2020. To subscribe today, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Otis. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash O-T-I-S. You'll find yourself on the sign-up page. From there, just enter your first and last name and your email address, and you'll be entered automatically for your chance to win a Rack Magnetic Wristband 100% free. And if you win, we'll throw in something else awesome, too. A custom story. That's right. If you win the drawing, not only will you get an awesome Rack product, but you'll get the chance to work with our team of writers one-on-one to have a custom story penned in your honor about whatever you like to be narrated by me on a future episode. And if that's not good enough, you'll get access to the latest news and info regarding the show, as well as access to subscriber-only promotional offers and exclusive story narrations not available to the general public. To get all that and more, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash O-T-I-S and join today. Thanks so much for signing up and for your support. It means a lot to me. Now, if you weren't convinced already that you wanted one, allow me to tell you what makes the Rack Magnetic Wristband one of Amazon's best-selling home improvement tools and why it's perfect for the handyman and the do-it-yourselfers listening in tonight. The Rack Magnetic Wristband comes with 10 strong magnets embedded in each wristband which surround almost your entire wrist, making it perfect for keeping track of screws, nails, bolts, washers, and drill bits. Headaches and lost time from losing or dropping small items while working will be a thing of the past with this time-saving wristband in your collection of tools. With its adjustable fit, one size fits most size, and durable, lightweight materials, it's a must-have gift for anyone, male or female, interested in DIY projects, big or small. Whether you want one for yourself, or you've got a birthday or special event coming up that requires a gift for the person who thinks they've got everything, the Rack Magnetic Wristband is the sort of thing that'll make you and your loved ones wonder why you went so long without one or managed without it. 
Whether you're improving your home or working in the construction, carpentry, or automotive repair fields, you're guaranteed to find this item indispensable. It's a must-have item. Great for fixing ceiling fans, recessed lighting, HVAC systems, electronic repair and model building, and perfect for hobbyists, scrapbooking, sewing gardener, and much more. And as if this wasn't good enough already, with Rack, your satisfaction is guaranteed. If for any reason you're not satisfied with your new Rack magnetic wristband or any of their other products, you have a full year to return the item no questions asked. So, if you're spending more time picking up the pieces than getting things done and can use a helping hand, give Rack's magnetic wristband a try today. You won't regret it. I know I didn't. For more information about Rack's magnetic wristband and their other amazing home improvement products, please visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash rack that's simply scary podcast.com slash r-a-k you'll be redirected to amazon.com where you can pick up your own magnetic wristband today as an amazon associate i earn from qualifying purchases and by visiting the url i just provided before you make your purchase a portion of your future sale comes back to me and the team at scary stories told in the dark at no cost to you. It helps to support this very program, and it lets the folks at Rack know that Otis Gyre sent you. Whether you end up purchasing the Rack magnetic wristband or end up buying any of the millions of other items available for sale on Amazon, a portion of your purchase is shared with us, and it won't cost you a penny. All you've got to do is visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash R-A-K and shop as usual. Thanks so much for your time and for checking out Rack this week. Your support means a lot to us. Now that we've made it easier to avoid losing your mind by keeping better track of your nuts and bolts, courtesy of our friends at Rack, Allow me to fill it with nightmares and yet another dose of darkness. Without further ado, from author E.C. Mann, I present to you Hangman. Freezing, Ron murmured, gloved hands pressed to the inferno. He breathed clouds of chilling vapor fumes and... I could feel the cold of his gasps. Oh, I hadn't noticed. The frozen atmosphere countered his gaze. Get your thong in a bunch, I teased. We'll be out of here in no time. Ron didn't seem convinced, melting away beside the fire's flickering warmth. How much longer till Ethan gets here? He moaned. I glanced at my watch, sighing in defeat. Should have been back ten minutes ago. Storm must be holding him. I noticed Ron tense up within the confines of his layered jacket. Think he's all right? He asked, watching the blaze envelop another log of timber. Hey, I wouldn't worry about Ethan. 
I said, twiddling a stick throughout my fingers. He's seen his fair share of shit. Ron forced a laugh, sounding more like a raspy gasp for air. I'm so thirsty. But Ethan's got all the drinks on him. My friend's face contorted to a look of anger and self-pity. Man, I could really use a cold beer right now. Put a sock in it, Ron, I grimaced. You're making me thirsty. He spat a hideous, groggy chuckle before sinking away into unconsciousness, pressing a cold cheek to the snow. Wake me when I'm dead, he groaned. I ignored him, snuggling closer to the crackling embers. This hunting trip wasn't going as planned. After weeks of preparation, we found ourselves thwarted by a freak snowstorm. Now I'm forced to sit in the ice, biting cold for Ethan to hurry his ass up. I cringed at the thought of him relishing in the glorious warmth of his truck. But as the minutes passed, so did my patience. Five, ten, fifteen, half an hour. Where the hell was he? I took a swig of water, which froze midway down my compacted throat. Ron awoke moments later, a look of fear and concern adorning his sunken eyes. Ethan's not here yet? he asked. No. I deadpanned, eyes virtually glued to the trail beside us. It's forty minutes late. Looks like we're walking. Ron wore a stare of deep uncertainty. Walk? We're five miles from the nearest town. Would you rather stay here and freeze? I watched his entire tongue knot up into a ball of slippery yarn. I didn't wait for an answer as I retrieved my hunting rifle and began walking off. Ron's knees buckled for a moment before he followed suit. I turned back one last time, watching as nature devoured our campsite. The tent still stood as howling winds pushed at it, with an unwavering force. The fire sputtered a final breath before dying down, a gush of thick snow extinguishing the cold cinders. We had no time to take our belongings apart from food and water. If we stayed any longer, we'd surely freeze. I can't recall how long we walked after that, but I do remember the cold. Then I thought of hell. Sure, I always assumed burning to death was a tragic fate. But freezing? I just can't describe it. The feeling within my fingers and toes dissipated, leaving behind nothing but sets of frozen black digits. My eyes stung, and closing them did little to ease the soreness. Cold had crept throughout the recesses of my body, and everything fell limp. But I managed to push aside the pain training my focus on the task at hand. I clutched the rifle a bit tighter, encasing the handle in an impenetrable grip. I doubt that I'd fire a shot that day, but the feel of it in my hands provided a false sense of security. I turned back to Ron, trailing a few feet behind. Whether it was the misleading glow of snuffed sun rays or a trick of my distant mind... I swear to you, that man looked dead. The tip of his nose had gone jet black, 
teeth chattering behind a cartoonish scowl. He held his gun close, his grip quaking. I'm going to kill Ethan, he murmured. I was always one to defend my friends, but today I took that thought into deep consideration. Unless Ethan had a mighty good reason to leave us here in the cold, that man won't be walking right for the next few days. I was about to say something when the faintest glimmer caught my eye. I turned to face the road ahead, my heart screeching to a halt. A pair of headlights gleamed beyond the snowy tundra. I raised my hands, nearly jumping. Hey! Hey! We need help over here! I shouted, desperate. But after a moment, it became clear that something was off. The headlights were stagnant, unmoving beside the winter winds. I raised my brow. Hello? I called again. There was no response apart from the screaming gale. Ron took a few steps forward, approaching the ominous glow without a word. I followed, but my gut screamed to stay away. In the end, foolishness overcame instinct, and I pressed on. Before long, we'd gotten close enough to unveil a disturbing truth. What we saw was Ethan's truck, sitting derelict beside the icy gravel road. It had been blanketed in snow from top to bottom, encased in a thick, blistering frost. I could hear Ron mumble something beneath his breath, locked in some sort of trance. The beaming headlights, though, still shone bright, illuminated the frozen path ahead. Ethan? Ron stuttered. You there? I pressed my hands to the passenger side window, unable to peer through the dense frostiness. To my surprise, the door opened with little effort, and what I saw did nothing to alleviate my fears. The vehicle had been ransacked, glove compartment ripped open, misguided knickknacks strewn across the torn leather seats. Ron got a good look at the chaos, his jaw unhinging. Windows were shattered, the steering wheel mangled to bits, dents adorning every crevice. Perched atop the dashboard was a pair of glasses, crumpled and smashed. I soon realized whose they were, and a sickening reality befell me like a stack of bricks. They were Ethan's. Ron was hyperventilating, stepped back and dropped the rifle, eyes wild and frantic. He cursed under his breath, and I could do nothing to calm him. What the fuck is going on? He choked. I stared blankly for a moment, caressing a hand through my hair. Then I looked back at the car, conjuring up terrible predictions. I tried so desperately to rationalize things, come up with some kind of plausible explanation. But this, this didn't make sense. Ron knelt down, picking up his gun. But as his knees fell limp to the snow blanket, I saw something in his eyes, a look... I hadn't seen before. It was dead, soulless, cloudy like a corpse. Hey, he called. You better take a look at this. I turned to him, the truck's beams cast brightly against my face. Besides Ron's uh, fallen rifle was a pair of footprints, 
perfectly indented in the snow. One by one, they trailed off into the forest beyond. Think they're Ethan's? He asked, faced masked by twisted shadows. I wanted to say no, but it couldn't be. Why would he just wander off after something like this? It didn't make sense. It didn't add up. But who else could it be? There wasn't another soul for miles. I, I think so. I said, wincing at the thought. Ron rose back to his feet, gun in hand. He looked at me, so many things swimming in those empty eyes. If those footprints really were Ethan's, I couldn't live with myself if we didn't follow them. He could be in serious danger, or worse. I mustered enough courage to seem brave, and without a word, Ron and I traversed the path of prints. I felt like I could be eaten alive by whatever dwells here. Trees arched at morbid angles, and bizarre rock formations jutted all around us. I didn't feel like I was on Earth, but on an entirely different planet. This was a hostile place, where alien creatures linger beyond eyesight. To my surprise, Ron didn't seem phased by the unnerving atmosphere. His eyes were true and steady, gun held in a solid grip. Perhaps he'd gotten a hold of things, come to terms with what was going on. But what we saw next eradicated all those thoughts and sent us both spiraling into a realm of ambiguity. Dangling from a tree nearby was a lanky, thin object, though I couldn't make it out from this distance. We picked up our pace and saw something I didn't want to believe. A noose, drifting aimlessly atop one of the many branches, swayed back and forth as the wind toyed with it, dancing a few feet above our heads. I could feel something horrible manifest inside me, quenching an uncanny will to run. Ron's gaze rested on the tattered rope for what felt like ages, and the entire world fell silent. The footsteps led to this tree and halted soon after. The path ends here, I said. Ron wasn't listening, but remained still, glaring at the suicide device above. Ron, I snapped. He turned on a dime, startled and shaking. How'd that get here? He asked. How the hell should I know? I replied, annoyed. Enough had already transpired. Last thing I needed was Ron losing his mind. I spun around, rifle tucked at my side. Expanses of wilderness surrounded us. I knew this wasn't it. This couldn't be it. Footsteps don't stop without a trace. It's as though Ethan had been plucked from existence. My God. I heard Ron whisper. What? What is it? I asked. Without a word, he extended a shaking finger to the woods beyond. Every tree held a noose, each dangling from its own branch. There was a trail of them, extending beyond my sight. They all drifted and swayed alongside the harsh wind, left to flail aimlessly like forgotten playthings. Ron looked at me hard. He didn't want to press on any longer, and I couldn't blame him. 
I demanded that he run back to town and get help. But I wasn't leaving. Something inside grounded me here, yearning for an end to all of this. After a brief argument, Ron set out the way he came, his crunching footsteps fading in the distance. I had only one destination in mind, and began following the endless trail of dangling nooses. Before long, I regretted my decision to go alone. The air grew heavy, pressing against my back every step. Trees contorted, fashioning shapes and positions I never knew possible. The nooses groaned against their rotting cords. There was a forest of rope embedded in the snow below me, dangling high above. I could only hope that Ron makes it back. The solitude of this place was enough to buckle my senses of reality. Where'd the nooses come from? Who hung them? What happened to Ethan? What's going... I stopped. Snowflakes pecking at my cheeks. The wind had fallen silent, a foreboding emptiness taking its place. I might have felt bliss then, might have found the strength to press on, if it wasn't for the man standing before me. Ahead was a long stretch of empty land, trees sprouting along both sides of the natural path, but at the end of the trail, a couple dozen yards away, stood a figure, a man of great stature. Amongst shallow breaths, I lost my voice. Part of me wanted to call out, ask for help. Another wanted to train the gun at him, fulfill my unearthly desire to end his life. But I found myself locked between my choices, standing frozen and pale. Something was horribly wrong about him, his abnormal height, lanky arms and wide, nearly inhuman frame. But what truly caught my attention was the hat, a bowler's cap, perched atop his head. He stood, stock still, burning holes into my head with a bewildering gaze. And then, before I could muster a thought, the man turned and walked off, vanishing beyond a thicket of trees. I remained stagnant for a moment, contemplating what I had just seen. I could still hear his boots crunching atop the snow, growing fainter by the moment. Despite my worries, I had a good feeling that this man knew of Ethan's whereabouts. He knew the answers. With my gun at the ready, I tailed him, keeping ample space between us. His dark silhouette loomed just at the borders of my vision. But I pressed on. What exactly was I walking myself into? Following a mysterious stranger through these haunting woods? But there was something about him, something that would help me find Ethan. All I wanted was that, my friends back together, sane and healthy. The man turned a corner, disappearing behind a wall of shrubbery. I pick up my pace, gun raised high, finger caressing the trigger. But as I followed his steps, I found myself in an open glade, a massive clearing, trees protruding from all sides like a sort of barrier. Sheer emptiness surrounded me at no sight of the man anywhere. His footprints stopped abruptly, Steady snowfall, obscuring the only proof of his existence. 
Had the whole encounter been a, a hallucination? Was it even really there? Was I losing my mind? As my head swam with thoughts of insanity, a blurry, elongated shape grabbed my attention. It wasn't the man, but something else entirely. As I stepped closer, choking on my breath, I realized that it was a tree, standing tall and silent within the clearing's center. A long, skeletal branch protruding from its left, and dangling from it was a noose. Dangling from the noose was a person. It took little effort to distinguish the limp appendages swaying back and forth in perfect time, bowed head, cut short by the firm grasp of the wiry rope. I wasn't sure whose cadaver lay before me, but I didn't want to know. I didn't want to unveil a truth I couldn't understand, though I had no choice. Creeping closer, the man's face came into view, and I could feel my legs quake, my hands tremble, my eyes sting with tears. It was Ethan, hung high and drifting aimlessly. I dropped my rifle to the snow, which fell with a muffled thud. He'd been stripped of most clothing, nothing left but the tattered remains of his trousers. A pair of sunken, empty eyes stared idly at the forest floor. His complexion cold and frostbitten. I had no words to describe the macabre scene before, so many different emotions swelling up inside. I didn't want to question this. I just couldn't stand to see Ethan left rotting in the cold. He deserved more than that. Fishing through my bag, I pulled out a pocket knife. I managed to reach up and cut him free, his body collapsing with a crack. Face pressed against the snow, arms and legs sprawled about like a forsaken toy. I turned him over, and I could do nothing but remove my hat and whimper a prayer. Whatever had happened to Ethan was unbeknownst to me, but I didn't have time to ponder the reality of all this. I couldn't stay here long, and the temperature was plummeting. I closed his glossy eyes pitiful cry escaping my lips. But then a thought struck me like lightning. Carefully, I slipped my hand into his front pocket. There they were, the keys to his truck. I thanked God and Ethan a million times before standing back up and retrieved my rifle. I turned to him one last time before walking off, a wave of happy memories flooding my mind. I hated to leave him there, but my choices were meager. I'd come for him, I promised that, and he'd receive a proper burial. But until then, I had to get out of here. With keys in hand, I ran the way I came, back to the road, back to the truck, back to salvation. Soon, Ron and I would reunite and all would be well. But what about the man, the mysterious figure who wanders this place? No, that was an illusion. It couldn't have been true. But the nooses, Ethan's untimely demise, who's to blame? My head ran rampant with questions, questions I had no answers to. 
But for now, I didn't care. I just needed to be out of this place. The further I ran, the darker things seemed. I knew my way back. It was a straight path to the truck. But as the wind kicked up plumes of dancing snow, I became unsure. It's as though the entire forest had melded together, every tree looking identical. It was a jumbled jigsaw puzzle of shrubbery and decaying flora. I was utterly lost. The wind grew louder and more violent, snow flying about like a storm of white slush. Trees rattled and shook, nooses falling to my feet. Everything churned, vibrating like an earthquake. The storm's intensity rivaled nothing on this earth, and I could feel my sanity slipping away. I knelt down, hands pressed tightly against my ringing ears. This place would be my tomb, I thought. A frozen, icy burial where no one could hear me cry. But amongst the flurry of nature, I could make out something. Faint, but still there, resting just out of earshot. A scream. A blood-curdling scream. A scream for mercy. I knew that sound back when I was a kid shooting rabbits on the farm. They'd squirm and shriek, squealing a pitiful moan before sputtering their last. But this, this was more than that. This was maximized to the highest volume, screams like that of a busted trumpet. It only took me a moment before I put two and two together. That was Ron's scream. No, 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 that's not possible. Ron should have made it back to town by now. He's supposed to be safe, not here. Despite my denial, I could still hear him crying, begging, Instinct overtook fear, and I bolted. Run! I hollered. I'm coming! It was close now, as his moans grew in intensity. So did my hope. I wouldn't lose another friend. I couldn't. But as I turned the bend, I was already too late. There, thrashing violently in the wind, was Ron. His neck nodded to a noose, his lifeless body flailing and spinning about. And I resisted the urge to cry again. Crunch, crunch, crunch. I spun on my heels, gun at the ready. Someone was walking through the snow. Come out! I screamed, choking on my words. Fucking come out! For the longest time, nothing happened, and the world around me fell away. My brain unraveling to ribbon. I was going mad. I'm losing my goddamn mind. But then, before utter insanity could engulf me whole, a figure emerged from the storm, thick and black, shoulders broad, tall and lanky, and that bowler hat. I stumbled back as he approached, my blood running cold. Looking down, I noticed his feet. They hovered inches above the snow, drifting like that of a phantom. But his face, that face, I don't know how to describe it. Imagine a hand smearing wet paint, distorting the colors, smudging everything into complete disarray. My finger lay on the trigger, sights set on the man's head. The life in me drained away, my senses snuffed out by fear and anguish. 
This man, this thing, he's not from here, not from this world. Slowly, he wafted with the wind, and the forest fell into a pit of stillness. Beneath his distorted complexions was a bow tie and sport jacket, slick and black. Then I saw what he held. Ron's rifle slung carelessly over his back. Suddenly, malice took control, and a coursing rage palpitated in my veins. I wanted to kill him so badly. I didn't care what he was anymore, where he came from. All I knew was the death of my friends, and for that, I could only yearn for his suffering. I wanted to see his blood stain the crystal snow. I wanted to paint the world with it, and most of all, I wanted him gone. His head tilted ever so slightly, observing me like a curious animal. I clenched my eyes, held my breath, and squeezed the trigger. A rattling boom crackled amongst the trees, my hands trembling as I fired again, and again, and again. One by one, the bullets flew, a crooked grin cresting my lips. Again, 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 the shots growing louder, vibrating the electric air of this forgotten place. When I finally ceased fire, a haze of smoke engulfed me. I waited for it to clear, expecting to see the man's slumping, lifeless body. But when the fog parted and clarity took hold, I could only let my jaw drop. There he stood, tall and nimble, void of even a scratch. In an instant, he flung the rifle over his shoulder, strained the gun at me, and with pinpoint accuracy, fired around into my hand. It all happened so fast I didn't quite know how to react. I dropped my weapon, screaming in shock. I'd never been shot before, but somehow, despite the steady stream of blood licking through my fingers, I didn't feel a thing. My brain had been cranked to overdrive, my heart beating at a rate too fast to monitor. He cocked his gun again, and I swear, he was smiling. Run, screamed my conscience. You have to run. He's going to kill you if you don't. Run! Leaving the rifle behind, I stumbled to my feet and ran, ran faster and farther than I thought possible. Gunshots bellowed from behind, colliding with trees, a flurry of rotten bark, exploding upon contact. I cradled my bleeding hand, wincing at the emerging pain, every fiber of me, pushing my limits to breaking point, and soon nothing seemed to matter but escape. I'd hopped fallen logs with little effort, dashed through twisted shrubbery like a rolling boulder. Fight or flight had kicked in, and flight was clearly my best option. Up ahead, the faint glimmer of Ethan's truck stole my attention, and I nearly shed tears of relief. Forty yards, thirty-five, thirty, twenty. I was so close. But then, just as salvation seemed inevitable... Another bullet echoed from behind. It pierced my right foot and I fell face first. The snow was cold, stabbing my cheeks like shards of broken glass. 
My adrenaline must have been off the charts because I still couldn't feel a thing. I could hear the man, though, running, boots crunching closer and closer, yet again. Have to get up. Have to escape. I crawled, clawing at the forest floor like a dying animal. I emerged from the tree line, collapsing beside the truck. My head spun, and I turned to find a long, thick trail of blood seeping from my foot. I didn't even care, and I struggled to stand. Swinging the door open, I jumped behind the wheel, fumbling with the keys in my pocket. Another bullet boomed from the looming forest, destroying the driver's side window. Shattered glass scattered across my lap. I turned to see the man a few feet away, gun in hand, aimed and ready. Ducking, another shot flew just over my head. It ricocheted within the truck's interior, bouncing and whizzing all around. After what felt like ages, it collided with the backseat cushion. I could breathe again. The vehicle sputtered to life, and I slammed the pedal so hard, I might have broken it. What happened after that? My brain is a bit hazy. I remember the screeching of tires as I departed the forest in a hurry. I remember looking out the rearview mirror, only to see the man gone. Ron's rifle left sitting in the snow. I remember pulling into town. I remember veering into the hospital parking lot, stumbling through the lobby and collapsing against the marble floor. I remember a group of nurses and doctors tossing me on a stretcher, and then all went black. I awoke the next morning, warm streams of sun spilling onto my face. My left hand and right foot were encased in bandages. Soon after awakening, a doctor opened the bedroom door. He sat on a nearby stool and began explaining a few things. He reminded me of my shocking entrance, how I limped into the hospital's lobby, then collapsed due to exhaustion. Apparently my body temperature was dangerously low, and I had been suffering from severe hypothermia. Also, a pair of bullet wounds were found in my foot and hand. The doctor gave me a stern look before demanding an explanation. By then the memories had returned, my body stiffening up beneath the blankets. I lied. I told him about Ron and Ethan, how they were attacked by a pack of wolves during a hunting trip. I told them how I miraculously survived the encounter badly injured and bleeding. I told him, during the midst of things, how Ethan accidentally shot me in the hand while targeting a wolf. In response, I fell down on my gun, which fired around straight through my foot. When he asked of Ron and Ethan's whereabouts, I explained that their cadavers should still be in the woods. My falsehoods flew out of me like honey and a sense of overwhelming guilt clogged up inside. But I couldn't tell the truth. Tell them of the nooses, the man, the morbid deaths of my friends. They'd lock me up in some psychiatric hospital, call me mad. It was the only way. Not long afterward, police were sent up those mountains and came back empty-handed. The bodies of Ethan and Ron never turned up, nor did any nooses. They assumed wildlife had finished off the remains, and after a week of fruitless searching, 
Authorities lost hope. People began accusing me of murder, and once my wounds healed, I was taken to court. Days upon days of trial ensued before I was pronounced innocent. There simply wasn't enough evidence to back up my supposed crime. The following months were bleak and somber. Our little town had never suffered such a loss, and the families of Ron and Ethan mourned every day since. I don't think they really got over their deaths. No parent should outlive their kid. I wanted to tell them the truth, what really happened, but I knew this was for the best. Before long, things fell back into normality and life moved on. I had attempted to block out the reality of my past, but some things simply cannot be erased. All of this went down about a year ago, and still the memories haunt me. I don't know why I had been spared that day, but that thing plagued my sanity. I know he'll be back. It's only a matter of time before his inevitable return. Just last week, under the cool dusk of an autumn evening, I let my dog, Sally, out to do her business. I sat on the porch, beer in hand, watching and waiting for her to finish. My backyard's nothing special, about fifteen square feet of grass, bordered by a rotting picket fence. In the right-hand corner sits an old oak tree. Its trunk is thick and bulky, taking up a bit of space. Only a few orange leaves still clung to their spindly branches, the rest blanketing the grass. But as I sit there, sipping away at my drink, something caught my eye. I blinked a few times, unsure if it was merely a trick of the evening sun. But no, no, it was there. I stood from my seat, dropping the beer can. There, dangling from one of the oak's many branches, was a noose. I hope you enjoyed Hangman by author E.C. Mann, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyre channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Gyre. Finally, thanks again to Rack for allowing us to share their products with you today. Don't forget, as an Amazon associate, I earn from qualifying purchases, and you can help support me and this show at no extra cost 
by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash rack. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash R-A-K. You'll be directed to amazon.com where you can pick up your own magnetic wristband today or any of the other items on your shopping list. And a portion of your purchase, whatever it might include, comes back to me and the team to help to support this program. And it lets the folks at Rack know that Otis Jiry sent you, and your support means a lot to both of us. Lastly, just a reminder that you can enter to win a Rack magnetic wristband of your own absolutely free. Not only that, but the winner of our drawing will get a custom-produced story, plus access to exclusive subscriber-only narrations and inside updates just by signing up for my podcast mailing list. To enter, sign up by Sunday, February 9th, 2020 at simplyscarypodcast.com slash Otis. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash O-T-I-S. You'll be entered automatically for your chance to win this week's item 100% free plus all the other cool bonus features I've mentioned today. Thanks again so much for your support. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, Do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. 
And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.